Hello and welcome to your path to success with Ruth Kearns Bowman. I'm a leadership development coach who's passionate about empowering leaders to show up more authentically, more powerfully, and with more impact. The past few months have been a bit crazy, haven't they, as the world has been responding and adapting to the global COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, it's affected all of us in slightly different ways, depending on where we live, the type of work we do, and our family circumstances. In my case, I was already used to working at home, but working at the same time as my husband, with a six-year-old in the house, was a whole new ball game for me. I have a lot less time on my hands, but I wanted to make this podcast relevant to what you're facing right now. So I decided to invite some leaders and experts to share their perspectives on the challenges we're facing in a series of conversations on leading through the COVID-19 crisis. In today's episode, my friend and co-active coaching colleague, Erin Clyman lassard and I discuss decision-making in turbulent times, how to avoid common pitfalls and develop a healthy mindset. Enjoy the interview. I'm so pleased to be able to introduce you to my friend and coaching colleague, Erin Clymer lassard today. Hi, Ruth. Thanks for having me. It's so great because you're not only a powerful executive coach who's worked with successful leaders in multiple Fortune 500 companies, but you're also an author and a decision-making expert. And, you know, I've invited you today so we can discuss the challenges of decision-making in turbulent times and how we can overcome them or at least manage them a bit better. Mm. So for many of us, this pandemic has confronted us with a multitude of decisions, both personally and professionally, often in areas we took for granted before. What are some of the areas which have affected you personally? Well, I'm a two-parent, two-kid household, and we are both working from home, and daycares are closed, and school is closed. Um, I'm bringing a U.S. perspective here of, of what it's like in in our sliver of the world, and it's brought chaos. <laughs> Having two kids and two parents and two jobs um, has brought chaos into our lives and into my working world. So where I'm used to having silence and solitude, now kids interrupt. And same thing for my clients. When I'm talking with clients, kids are interrupting. So our work selves and our home selves are much more intertwined now. There aren't the boundaries we're used to setting. And so it's required me to be very real about who I am and what my world is. And it's also invited my clients to do more of the same. Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. How do you link that back to decision making, which is what we had to talk about today? What what kind of decisions has it impacted for you? Well, certainly everything's gone online, right? So as a coach and consultant, some of my work is on the phone. Some of my coaching work is on the phone, but my consulting work is all face-to-face and I'm traveling on site to be with clients and for obvious reasons, that's gone now. And so we've had to shift and figure out where do we postpone and say we still want to do this live and that matters and we'll hold off? And where do we have to find a whole new way of doing it? Can we deliver it virtually? How do we make it as impactful virtually? What is short-term? What is long-term? What do we need to be preparing for? What shifts do we need to expect? 
in the long term that, that maybe we never anticipated before. So it's caused me to take a different look at the way I conduct my business. Yeah, absolutely. In the context of everything you know about decision-making, what are the most common challenges we all face? You know, if you like the, the traps or things we fall into and, and how are they showing up in this context? Yeah, it's a fascinating question to observe in my clients is where they get stuck with decision-making. And what I've learned over the, the decade working with leaders is that we all assume processes, decision-making processes are there to take the worry out of decisions and take the emotionality out of them. But I see again and again with clients they go through their process and get to the point where it's okay, now make the decision or act on the decision, and they still don't know how to pull the trigger. So sometimes I see in my clients this pitfall of needing more, needing more information, needing more buy-in, needing more assurance that the decision is right, and so a real struggle to actually pull the trigger on it. On the opposite side, I also see clients who have a process, trust their process and do it alone. And they make unilateral decisions and they trust that if I've done all my homework, I'll be able to convince people because they've seen I've done my homework. But what happens instead is that they got no buy-in along the way. They didn't take the opportunity to influence while they were making their decision. They assumed that they knew what they needed to know about how people would react or what their needs were. And their decisions are also dead because they try to barrel them through and then people won't get on board and their process gets stymied in the same way. So two very opposite pitfalls, but both stop decision-making dead in its tracks. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's the kind of wanting more input information, data, and so stalling. And the other one's like, I've gone through my decision-making process. This is what it is and just going. Yeah. And then, then getting stuck because, you know, you haven't brought people along with you. Exactly. And they're both in a way to do with timing, which is to come back to what you were talking about in, in terms of how this whole situation is affecting us. You know, it's what is short and what is long-term and what do I need to decide now? And, and where do I need more information that, by the way, I may never get? Right. Um, and you, you asked the question, too, about how is this impacting things right now? What I'm seeing is sort of in the stalling camp of things, people assuming that I can wait this out. Right. That I can pause, we'll see what happens, and then I'll make decisions. When in reality, it's a decision in and of itself to stall, to wait, right. right? So if I choose to do nothing, I am making a choice and that has its own risk profile and people regularly don't realize that. They assume that the least risky thing is to wait when in fact, sometimes it's the most risky thing. Hmm. And on the other side, do you see people also barreling through? I see people... You know, it's a real, that's a really interesting challenge and interesting question because yes, some people are making quick decisions, perhaps hasty decisions. I'm not sure that's always wrong right now. I guess what I'm seeing more of is 
people not making necessarily unilateral decisions, but recognizing they can't make this decision alone. So I'm, I'm not seeing so much unilateral decision-making right now as I'm seeing quicker collective decision-making and the, the needs of the time are getting people off of the fence quicker. Yeah, I think the way that I've seen it and I've heard some leaders having to make these decisions talking about it is, I know that I don't have enough data. I know that things may need to change. We need to make a decision now and I'm going to communicate clearly to the people whom this decision affects that yes, it may, it may change, but we need to move fast now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole lot more vulnerability in that kind of decision-making. There's a whole not a whole lot more communication and um, directness that happens in that kind of situation. And that's delightful to see. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this combination of directness and connectedness is quite, yes. You know, it's almost like the holy grail of leadership that people right? do, right? Yes. Um, what positive examples have you seen of leadership and decision making in the in the past few months? I've seen a lot of small companies make make changes to to meet what's needed. So whether it's um, research facilities quickly figuring out new ways of testing to meet the absence of available tests or companies completely shifting their production line. So there's a, a great example of a, a local company near me. I'm in Maine in the U.S. And so there's this lovely company called Flowfold that makes um, wallets and backpacks out of sale material. And they quickly shifted their entire production to make protective gear, which is in uh, very short demand here in the U.S., and it required, or it, their ability to make that shift quickly had to do with the fact that they knew what their values were as a company. They knew what was important to them and how they wanted to respond and who they wanted to be. And so they could quickly shift and change what they were making to meet the needs of the time. There's also a financial impact for them. You know, if people aren't going to be buying as much. They knew that their revenue would be impacted by the pandemic. And so they were able to find a way to make something that was in need that people would still be buying. So it's not just altruistic. Um, it's also driven by a need to shift from a revenue perspective, but seeing a big picture of how they can contribute and how it connects to who they want to be as a company. And you didn't see that in the large companies quite as quickly. It took, it took longer for the 3Ms and, and the big companies to shift and start making protective gear. It was really the small companies that came through. Hmm. I, I want to talk a, a little bit about mindset because I know that that's something which you talk about a lot in your book, uh, Decision Flow. Um, what mindset do you need to be able to have this agile level of decision making? Yeah, so what I find so often, and, and this surprised me when I started working with leaders. I learned this with and from my leaders over time. But the first important piece of mindset is that process isn't enough that process won't get you through, that you're still going to have these uh, errors of, of execution if you, don't, if you don't tend to the inner place. Another 
um, really important piece is recognizing the difference between problem solving and decision making. Sometimes we assume that if we rely on our great problem solving skills, because most leaders have been promoted for problem solving, we love problem solvers. But what can happen in a decision making space is that we rely on how we know how to analyze the thing that happened in the past. So we dig into what happened and identify all the problems and then seek to solve those. What that does is it roots us in the past to the way we understood the problem. It anchors our ability to solve to the past and to the problem as we understood it. A decision-making mindset is actually something quite different. It requires us to see forward and look into the future and not be anchored to the problem as we knew it. Problem solving is important. People have to be able to do it. It can be an input into decision-making, but decision-making has to be seen as something separate and something forward-thinking that maybe steps over some of the solutions that come from a problem-solving space. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting, especially as for quite a bit of my career, I worked in consumer insights. So we were often the ones who provided input to the decisions. Hmm. So it was always interesting when you grow in the organization to realize that, okay, I'm really good at this and this is what I bring to the party. And I needed to take into account that the person making the decision has other factors they're looking yes. at it from a different space and and the fact that it's a mindset also because um as human beings the way our brains work when, when, we, when we focus on the past we're not able to open up new possibilities so it like you say decoupling it is so important exactly uh, which is why often you know our leaders had us there to do the kind of this is, this is what I see and I've done the past. And they weren't stuck in it. They weren't as attached to it yes. as maybe those of us who'd done the problem solving for them, you know, were. Right, right. That's a great example. So other mindset challenges I see, one has to do with um, all of the voices that come into our head and influence right. what, what we see, how we make decisions or why we don't make decisions. So any time people say something like, well, part of me thinks this and part of me thinks that. We're underscoring the fact that we have all of these voices going on in our heads that influence our ability to make decisions. And so often we assume those are bad. And especially when you think about the inner critic, a voice we all know well and all have, we assume that we need to just shut those voices out so we can see clearly and make the decision. But just like um, little kids or, or even our employees, when we shut their voices down, their voices get louder. They tend not right. to just go away. They come back and say it again and in a new way and maybe a more forceful way. And a, well, you're going to listen to me now kind of way. Mm -hmm. So we have to develop a different ability to understand what are all of the concerns that we're holding and and actually bucketing them into different voices this is an exercise i do with my clients and and i i had one client who was a consultant and she wanted to be able to make decisions from a consensus base so she had a hard time trusting 
that she could come up with ideas. So she would like outsource or crowdsource the decision-making process and want to have everybody's deep involvement. Um, and it often meant that she wasn't, she wasn't willing to take the risk herself to make some choices. So when we did this exercise of voices, we found all of these different things coming into play and we would do the exercise once and then she would recognize later on next time she was struggling with the decision oh yep here are these same voices showing up uh, so they were they were often there at the table for her so there was you know a per- perfectionist voice who wanted to make sure she was not gonna fail there's a, a communal value voice a community voice that wanted to get everybody's input there was this sort of don't be overbearing voice so something from our past something we learn long ago that shows up as a a critic there was this visionary voice that was actually getting shut out a lot of the time by all of these other concerned voices so it, it sounds schizophrenic and it's not it's something we all have all of these voices so learning how to not tune them out but tune in right and the concerns that each is holding so that we can, it's almost like we're facilitating a conversation between in our own psyche and understanding all the different concerns we hold and being able to make sense of that. Yeah. What, what, what other mindsets do you come across most frequently? I see a lot of people who don't recognize how prone they are to defensive reactions, Right. how sort of protected they are from criticism and um, from from failure, all of their own their own stories, and so they defend and are often very unaware of of the experience or, or the impact that that has on other people. So they may not recognize that they're showing up in conversations in a way that shuts people down. So other people don't bring the information that they need to hear because they've been trained by this defensive person that that's not going to be received. Um, I've got one client who's, who's defends his value so much. So he has this strong value of um, integrity and he's so defensive about this value that he can't hear other people's input. He can't imagine ways in which he's wrong. Right. And so anytime somebody brings something to him, he shuts it down. Mm-hmm. And so he's missing the information he needs. People know that he know that he won't um, be willing to change and that it's his way or the highway. It's jeopardizing his relationships with his peers and his managers. It's having a huge impact on his ability to succeed. And yet he sees it as I'm you know, defending integrity how important is it? I have this huge burden to bear in this company of being the one who defends integrity. Um, And yet it's actually a very defensive stance that's getting in his way of making good decisions. Hmm. And so how do you work on that? Even once you're aware, some of these behaviors that we have are almost instinctive. I mean, obviously they're learned behaviors over time, so they're not really instinctive, but that's how it feels. It feels like, oh, the horse has bolted and then I realize I've done it and I think, oh, you know, what do I do now? Yes. How important for us to learn how to apologize. (laughs) So recognizing when we've done it and being willing to backtrack it. It's interesting working in a developmental space with clients because we have to be willing to do things like to stop doing this thing that we're really good at and is instinctive and natural for us and to start doing something different and doing it poorly at first and doing it awkwardly 
before it becomes something we can do naturally and good. And we can shift from the poor activity to the good activity, but it takes being willing to be in that messy space of not doing it well yet. And so we need to recognize the impact it's having on. So if, if I'm someone who sees now that I've got this dis- defensive response and I need to learn how to do something different, I need to be willing to see all the places it shows up and all the impact that it has on the people around me. So I need to feel that there is a reason to change this because it's going to be work. Yeah. Right? And so then I need to get into that messy space of doing the right thing poorly. Yeah. So, and sometimes I have to let people know, like I'm trying to learn and I'm going to need your help here. So I'm going to try and apologize when it doesn't mm-hmm. go as I intend and I'm working to grow and I'll need your assistance. Um, all sorts of exercises we can do to calm our mind. There's you know, meditation has been shown to, um, weaken the link between our emotional regulation center, the amygdala, and the input that comes from our surroundings. So doing things like meditation, whether that's silent meditation, which works for some people but doesn't work for everyone, or guided meditation, or walking meditation, or exercising with intention, there are so many different ways of getting that same benefit of calming our minds and our emotional centers so that we aren't as as defended, um, recognizing all of the things that influence what we're defended against. And, and I talk a lot about this in the book and give lots of different exercises and different ways of exploring, whether it's our stories of past failure, whether it's our own over-functioning for whatever reason, our own perfectionism getting in our way, if it's the stories that we hold and these voices that come at us from multiple angles. There are lots of different things that give input to tell us we need to protect ourselves and make sure that doesn't happen again, or we don't get hurt, or we don't fail, or we don't get embarrassed. So being able to do the work of recognizing all of the inputs and get in the messy space of learning to do something different isn't easy, but wow, is it powerful. Mm -hmm. What it can do for leaders, both how they feel coming out of that, what it feels to lead from a place of authenticity and power versus a place of weakness and fear. We don't often think of leading from weakness and fear, but many of us do. So it has different impact for the people we lead and for us as leaders and for our families. We're, again, we're not like one, one sliver of a person. When we do this work professionally, it also bleeds into our family life and changes their dynamics that we have yeah. there. Yeah, for sure. And I think one perspective that people can come from or that we can come from when we're looking at these things that we do and they seem deeply ingrained, um, we know we've always done it that way and it's very uncomfortable to shift is, you know, that's just the way I am, or, you know, it will never, so a bit of a fixed mindset. Yeah. It's just about helping people to to understand that they can, as you do the kind of mindfulness type of exercise that you say, that I am not actually my emotions. You know, I, I am not, uh, my my person is not, is mm-hmm. more than this defensive reaction. And therefore I can step back from it and 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 look at it from a distance and explore it. And I find that so powerful in coaching. It's not about fixing people. It's about, you know, almost releasing people into yes. more of who they are. And, and I'm yes. sure that's one reason I can see you nodding because we can see each other, you know, 
one of the things that that I love about about coaching is is freeing people up to be, as you said, more authentic, more powerful. In fact, in, in their way to to lead others, and it's a it's a virtuous circle because then they're able to release other people into into that space. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a recognition of where we are, a desire to change, which is the kind of, you know, it's got to be worth it for the people because this is going to yeah. be work. Yeah. Um, and then the the practicing and being willing to fail and to um, to learn again. I have a, a friend who tells this story. He worked for the same man for 25 years. And wow. this man um, loved leadership development. And he had a series of tapes, because this was back in the 80s. So he had a series of tapes that he would listen to. And he would always talk with his team about these leadership skills and everything he was learning on his tapes. And in 25 years, according to my friend, this man never changed a thing about how he led. So he was fascinated by the intellectual exercise of it, right. but unwilling to do the messy work of doing something different with it, actually putting that learning into practice. And that's the risk we all, we all hold. That's why coaching is such a powerful tool because it can help hold you accountable. And if you're really ready to do the work and, and change, not just understand it intellectually, but actually do it. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, we started off our discussion by, you know, acknowledging that the times we're in right now, these turbulent times, they make decision-making more challenging. So let's come back to ourselves and, and, you know, what are you learning? And I'll ask myself the same question, uh, yourself about decision-making and and what do you want to take with you from this time into the, to the future? Yeah. So I always tell my clients about the importance of making space, carving out space for this sort of work, for the important stuff, not just the urgent stuff. And as my own time gets squished, I have way less time to do my work than I'm used to. Um, I'm having to heed my own advice and, and carve it out and choose not to do some things that are important so that I can do the thing that will actually build for the future. And that's the only way I can get into the proper decision mindset to to really make the right decisions for the future. So learning how to really protect that important time thinking space, carving it out, Mm -hmm. choosing it over other urgent things. Mm -hmm. And to keep that mindset when you know, the times change again when the decision-making isn't so critical. Yeah. I think for me, um, and you know this because you know me a little bit, but, you know, I always describe myself as a recovering perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And for me, this period of time, because, again, the time is squeezed, I'm having to learn how to, um, what's good enough. Yes. Because my desire is to add value to people. And then I think, oh, yeah, but I want to do it really well. And, you know, I just... I don't have the time for that. So I'm having to let go a little bit. And I think that that's really a skill that is uncomfortable for me, but I'm learning and I want to take forward with me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my one. It's what led me a little bit to do these podcasts in a different way. um, Because I I simply don't have the time to do, to do them in the way I was doing before. So. Yes. Ah, beautiful. I'm so glad you're doing them because this has been so fun. No, it's been really great fun. Erin, before I let you go, uh, tell people how they can get hold of your book. Yes. I've read it 
Um, and so I can vouch for the fact that it's really valuable. But also what I love about it is every chapter has these exercises and, and ideas for things you can try. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's called Decision Flow, The Authentic Leader's Guide to Making the Right Decision When the Stakes Are High. Boy, did I not know how high the global stakes would be when I was writing this book a year ago. Um, but it's available on Amazon as an ebook or now as a print book as well. And lots of lots of work to do in the book that's really practical and a way for you to to start. So my intent with the book was really to help people do this, um, not just read about it, but do the work and of course, I run programs that helps people do that with me as well. Um, but I hope I hope you'll pick it up and let me know what you think, and enjoy enjoy the vision of who you can be as a decision maker when you let mindset come to play and don't just fall victim to assuming process will be all you need. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Erin, and we'll be in touch very soon. I'm sure. Thanks, Ruth. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Success with me, Ruth Kearns Volman. I found Erin's focus on mindset as being central to good decision making so insightful, particularly in turbulent times when many of our ingrained behaviours have a tendency to show up even more strongly. So as you think about the decisions on your plate right now, I encourage you to take a step back and notice which behaviours or mindsets might be getting in the way of you moving forward effectively. If you'd like some more tips for working on mindset and decision making, I can thoroughly recommend Erin's book. It's called Decision Flow and you can find it on Amazon. Or if you'd like a sample coaching session on this topic, you can contact me via the book appointment tab on my website, yourpathtosuccess.ch. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please do subscribe so that you don't miss the next episode in the series of conversations on leading through the COVID-19 crisis.